This morning in our study of the book of Genesis, we come to chapter 36, and we will begin by reading verses 1 through 8. These are the words of God. Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabahoth. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basamath bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jaelim, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Zair. Esau is Edom. Our God and Father, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning by the Spirit. Give understanding into these things. Build us up and strengthen us. Make us glad that we would be your faithful and true servants. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 36 gives us the generations of Esau, the descendants of Esau, who is also known by his nickname, Edom, which means red. Verses 1 through 8 give us the names of his wives and his sons, and it tells us how the whole clan came to move to the region of Mount Zair, which would also become known as Edom. And this was of the Lord, for he will later tell Israel not to lay a hand on the land of Mount Zair because he had given it to Esau and to his descendants. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The rest of chapter 36 gives us the names of the various kings and chiefs among Esau's descendants who would rule in the land of Edom, as well as the sons and rulers descending from Zair the Horite, who originally inhabited that land, you can see that in verse 9, and who apparently was an ally of Esau's. Well, all of this seems straightforward enough, but there is a question that arises for us as modern Christians, which is, how are we supposed to think about Esau and his descendants? We see that they are given a special place in Scripture, And God calls them your brethren in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 4. But God also says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, which is quoted by Paul in Romans 9, 13, and is typically viewed as God's decree that Jacob shall be saved, but Esau damned. So let's take a closer look this morning because this is the vein that we have to pursue if we want to know from the Bible itself how we should think about Esau and his descendants. First of all, we need to recognize that the Bible clearly teaches God's sovereignty in salvation. For if God were not sovereign, there would be no salvation. 
Now, there are so many passages we could look at, both Old Testament and New, but I will pick one, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Now, the mistake we often make here when we read passages like this is that we picture God in his sovereignty like a hockey goalie who is sovereignly blocking people who are trying to come to Jesus but God doesn't want them to come to Jesus. In truth, there is no one to block. Because apart from God sovereignly making us alive, Him intervening in our lives, interfering in our lives, not giving us over to our own way and our own choices, but changing our hearts, making us alive, no one would ever turn to Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 4. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, this is what it means to be saved by grace. It means we contribute one thing to our salvation. We are dead in our trespasses. That's our part. God's part is the rest. He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And then even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then in verse 8, he tells us that even our faith is not something we can take credit for. It is something that God has worked in us by his spirit. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And we could add many Similar passages, Old Testament and New. The point is, there's no question that the Bible teaches God's sovereignty with regard to salvation right down to the individual level, because without it, no one would come to Christ. But, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, where our quote appears, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, I would submit to you that in those chapters... Paul is focusing at least primarily on a different aspect of God's sovereignty. He's certainly focusing on God's sovereignty, but a different aspect of it. The aspect of God's sovereignty that pertains to what was the burning issue of the first century, the burning issue in the days of Jesus, John the Baptist, and the apostles. And that burning issue was not whether God is sovereign with regard to individual salvation, but is God sovereign in what defines his people? And in God's sovereignty, what is it that defines his people? Now, you had other times in church history where the burning issue really was God's sovereignty in salvation as opposed to whether man was totally depraved or whether he retained in himself the spark of goodness and the ability to come to truth himself and so forth. For example, in the days of Augustine, 
in his great debate with Pelagius. That was the burning issue. In the time of the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, Martin Luther's debate with Erasmus, in which Luther wrote his famous work, The Bondage of the Wheel. And the point he was making is, our wills are bound. If God is not sovereign, no one's going to be saved. The Dutch Reformed Church in the late 1500s, early 1600s, um, their debate with the remonstrants who were the followers of Arminius. Again, that was the burning issue of that day. So there's been a number of times in church history where that really was the burning issue. And scripture has a lot to say about it. It's just that the first century, when the New Testament was written, that was not the burning issue. It was something, it was the sovereignty of God was, was, was central, but a different aspect of the sovereignty of God. So on this question of what defines the people of God, the Jewish leadership was providing one answer, and Jesus, John the Baptist, and the apostles were providing a different answer. The Jewish leadership was saying what defines God's people is national Israel marked out by circumcision and perpetual ritual separation from Gentiles. You can read about that in Acts chapter 15 and in Galatians chapter 2. It pervades the pages of the New Testament, but those two chapters really focus in on that issue and the various contentions. The apostles came back against the Jewish leadership and they said, what defines the people of God is... Jesus. That's it. Jesus. All who believe in Jesus, circumcised or not, are included in God's people. And all who disbelieve, circumcised or not, are excluded. There are a lot of chapters that deal with this, but Galatians 3 is a big one, if you want to read. The Jewish leadership then answered back that Jesus cannot be the Christ, because he's not embracing national Israel as it is. Rather, he is remaking Israel around himself in violation of all of God's promises. The apostles responded to the Jewish leadership saying, you need to go back and reread your history in Scripture. And see that God remade his people around every single one of the Christ types. All of whom were pointing to Christ Jesus. Around whom God was in the first century remaking his people finally and forever. In fulfillment of every single one of his promises. This is a point, for example, that we can see Peter making in his Pentecost sermon. He uses Moses as an example. Moses was one of the towering Christ types of the Old Testament. Acts 3.22, Peter says, Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Well, what does that mean? Well, Moses was unique in a couple of different respects from the other prophets. Number one... God spoke to Moses face to face. That's a point God himself made. He said, I don't speak to him in visions and dreams. I speak to Moses face to face like a friend. 
That was unique to Moses. The second thing is not all of the prophets were Christ types, but Moses was. And if you look in Exodus, all of those who believed in the Lord, who trusted in his word and his salvation, they all rallied to Moses. So God used Moses to remake his people. All of those who rejected Moses were no longer part of God's people. That's the way it worked. And so then Peter continues, This prophet who shall be like me, you shall hear him in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So what Moses was saying, I mean, what Peter was saying in so many words here is that as God remade Israel around Moses, the Christ type, so God is doing finally and forever around the real Christ to whom Moses pointed. And this was also the case with the other Christ types, the ones who came before Moses, because before Moses, there was Joshua. And God remade his people around Joshua. Before Joshua, there was Jacob. And before Jacob, there was Isaac. God remade his covenant people around every single one of the Christ types. All of these Christ types are pointing to Christ. So all of God's people had to respond in faith by rallying around the Christ type. Whoever failed to do so, whoever scoffed at the Christ type like Ishmael did, Whoever thought I should be the Christ type and covenant head like both Ishmael and Esau did, they were put out of God's covenant people. Okay, with that background, let's look now at Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. This is the word of promise. At this time I will come to Sarah, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, so there he's talking about the promise of the miraculous birth of Isaac because uh, Rebekah was barren. Not only this, but I mean Sarah was barren. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Now, what we need to keep in mind is that there is more than one kind of election in the Bible. There is God's sovereign election unto salvation. There's also God's sovereign election of the various Christ types in the Old Testament. And the latter is what Paul is talking about here. Let's look at the whole statement that God made to Rebekah in Genesis 25:23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. You see, this is not talking about individual salvation. This is talking about which of the twins in Rebecca's womb is going to be the covenant head and the Christ type and thus have the stronger and more prominent nation coming from them. So in Romans 9, 9 through 12, Paul is showing how God sovereignly chose Isaac 
as the Christ type over firstborn Ishmael and sovereignly chose Jacob as the covenant head and Christ type over firstborn Esau. God keeps making the point, this is not about normal human descent or inheritance. Not about that. In both cases, God remade his people around the Christ type. Those who scoffed at the Christ type or sought to challenge the Christ type were put out of God's covenant line. That is what happened to Ishmael and Esau. But putting Ishmael and Esau outside the covenant line did not mean that God was eternally damning them. That is a separate issue which remained to be seen. Ishmael and Esau were in the same position as the Jews in the first century who were rejecting Christ. Paul specifically says in Romans 11:23, if those Jews repented of their unbelief and came to Christ by faith, they would be saved and grafted back into God's covenant people. So Paul, um, that's the position that Ishmael and Esau were in. All right, so now we're ready to come to Romans 9, verse 13. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, the reason why that sounds so much like a prophetic decree of personal eternal destiny is that Paul quotes it immediately after the older will serve the younger. So it sounds like the two statements were made by God at the same time and under the same circumstances. But they weren't. Not even close. The older will serve the younger was made in Genesis chapter 25 in about 1900 B.C. Before Jacob and Esau were born. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated was made in Malachi chapter 1, the last prophet of the Old Testament, in about 425 B.C., almost 1,500 years after Genesis 25, long after Jacob and Esau were dead. The reason why Paul quotes these statements of God back to back is that Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, shows how the older will serve the younger worked its way out over 1,500 years of history. Now, remember the whole statement that goes with the older will serve the younger. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated sums up how the older shall serve the younger worked itself out in history. It's not talking about Jacob and Esau personally at all. They are long dead. It's talking about the nations that came from them, Israel and Edom. What has occurred over the 1,500 years between those two statements is that whenever Edom, the nation, has been content to live at peace with Israel and effectively under her lead, Edom has been blessed. Unfortunately, those times were few and far between. For the most part, the nation of Edom has shown a pattern of hatred and hostility to Israel. Some examples. 
after Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus, they sought permission to cross Edom's land because that it was the shortest way to their destination. If they couldn't go through Edom, it was going to be a lot longer and a lot rougher journey. And God told them, you're not going to touch, you're not going to take even a handful of, of Edom's land here. And so they told the rulers of Edom, we're not going to take anything, we're not going to touch anything, we're going to stay on the highway, we're going to pass through. If anybody touches anything, we will pay for it. But Edom came out with a lot of hostility with all their soldiers and said, no, you're not walking across our land. So Israel had to take the long way around. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 20. In the days of Saul and David, Edom frequently fought against Israel. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel chapter 8. But probably the worst example was when Babylon besieged and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The Edomites cheered them on. And they stood on the crossroads so that when Israelites were trying to escape from the devastation, the Edomites would capture them and then turn them over to the Babylonians. And when Jerusalem finally fell, the Edomites participated in the looting of the city. You can read about that in Psalm 137, verse 7, and Obadiah 10 through 14. So there was this pattern of historical hatred and hostility toward Israel. So God prophesied judgment, historical judgment, against Edom through Isaiah and Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, among other prophets. A good example is Ezekiel 35 at verse 3. Behold, O Mount Zair, that is Edom, I am against you, says the Lord. So what is God going to do? Verse 4, I shall lay your cities waste. He's not talking about eternal final judgment here. He's talking about historical judgment. He said, I'm going to lay your cities waste. Why? Verse 5, because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel. So God brought temporal judgment on Edom in the form of conquest and captivity to the Assyrians. And they, in fact, laid waste to Edom's cities. Meanwhile, not long after that, Israel herself went off into captivity to Babylon because of her own unfaithfulness to the Lord. But after 70 years of captivity in the providence of God, the Persian ruler who took over from the Babylonians allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild it. And God has been encouraging them to do that. And that's the purpose of the book of Malachi, to encourage the Jews to take up the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, as the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem and started to rebuild it, they have encountered opposition and hardship. I mean, whoever heard of God's people when they are obeying the Lord and building his kingdom and his church, encountering hardship and opposition. When would that ever happen? When would it not happen? That's always God's way. That's his way of building us up as his sons and daughters, making us stand up 
to our full height and become all that it means to be God's sons and daughters. And so it was in the Old Testament. But unfortunately, the Israelites, when they encountered hardship and opposition, they took that as proof that God did not love them. God doesn't love us. And so they not only became discouraged, they became self-pitying and sullen. And that then brings us to the setting for the prophet Malachi. Let's look at Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You see the sullenness. You see the self-pity. How have you loved us? That's the main roadblock in Israel failing to rebuild Jerusalem. So God, as he's going forth in Malachi, is going to show them and teach them the difference between discipline, which comes from a father's love, and is designed to make his sons and daughters, again, stand up to their full height and be all that it means to be a son or daughter of God. The difference between discipline and punishment, which is intended to live up to its name, it punishes. That's the point. He's going to show them what I did with you, with the Babylonians, that was discipline. What I did with Edom and the Assyrians, that was punishment. And one of the main differences is I'm letting you go back and rebuild. But if Edom tries to rebuild, I'm going to knock it down again. And so we pick up in the middle of verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. He's talking about the whole history of the relations between Edom and Israel over the last 1,500 years. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. That's the Assyrian captivity. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. So we see that Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, in context, in Malachi, is a historical summary of how the older shall serve the younger, worked itself out over generations in the Old Testament. It is not a statement that all Edomites are eternally damned or under temporal uh, uh, punishment forever, no matter what. We know this because God promised to include Edom with the rest of the Gentiles. Indeed, if we want to be perfectly accurate, God promised to include the rest of the Gentiles with Edom In his people, in his New Testament people, in the day when he would destroy the temple, that's talking about 70 A.D., when God destroyed the temple through the Roman legions, and when he rebuilds the tabernacle of David, which is the way God describes his New Testament church. Look at Amos chapter 9 and verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. Verse 11. So he's talking there about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Verse 11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. This is the way God's describing the New Testament church. 
I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who were called by my name. Now, most Christians have no idea what the tabernacle of David is. Um, and don't feel bad about that because most scholars, most theologians, most seminary professors don't either. And it's a, it's something that is easy to miss because it only existed for a short period of time in the Old Testament. And then it's not talked about anymore until you get to the prophet Amos. Look at first Chronicles 16 and verse one. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. So this is talking about when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem when it has been away uh, for many, many years. The tabernacle, the old tabernacle, does not exist anymore. The temple has not been built yet. It's going to be built by Solomon. So David erected a tent, a tabernacle, for the Ark of the Covenant. And it only existed during this interim period between the old tabernacle and then the Temple of Solomon. Now what we see then happening in the Tabernacle of David is some very interesting things. The first thing we see is that the people were worshiping right in front of the Ark. Now if that had occurred in the Tabernacle or if it occurred later in the temple, those people would have been consumed by the fire of the Lord. There would have been a veil separating people from the Ark of the Covenant. But in the tabernacle of David, they're worshiping right in front of the Ark of the Covenant, right in front of the presence of God. That was unique to the Old Testament. The second thing that was unique is you had Jews and Gentiles worshiping together right in front of the ark. You see in First Chronicles 16 and verse 4, David appointed a number of Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate and thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And then he lists the ones who appear to be the worship leaders. He lists a number of Levites, and then the last name he mentions is some dude named Obed-Edom. This is a Gentile. This is a descendant of Edom. Obed-Edom was the guy that David left the ark with the first time he tried to bring it into Jerusalem, and David got scared to death to bring it into Jerusalem because they weren't transporting it the right way. It started to topple. A man put up his hands to steady it, and God struck him. And so David is scared to death. He's scared to bring it to Jerusalem. So apparently nearby was the farms and the house of this Gentile, Obed-Edom. And so David basically says, here, you take the ark. So Obed-Edom takes the ark to his house. And the ark remains there, it says, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Second Samuel 6, verses 10 and 11. So he's one of the guys who's worshiping, or maybe even it seems like leading worship there before the tabernacle of David. Obed-Edom, the Bible tells us, was a Gittite. 
That means he was from the town of Gath, which was located in the land of the Philistines. Um, If you remember the giant Goliath, he was a Gittite. He was from Gath. So this Obed-Edom character has a lot of street cred in terms of being a Gentile. He's a descendant of Edom, and he's from Gath of the Philistines. That That's a lot of credentials in terms of being a Gentile. So, when God, through Amos, prophesies that he, what he's going to do in the New Testament, he does not say, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle, or I'm going to raise up the temple, or I'm going to raise up the synagogue. He says, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David. And so in Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, where they're dealing with this issue, how do you define the people of God? Do Gentiles have to be circumcised and become part of national Israel in order to be part of the people of God? And of course, they said no. But one of the scriptures they cited was Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. They took that as proof that God always intended when Christ came and his new covenant church was there, it would be Jews and Gentiles both worshiping right before the presence of the Lord. Now, if you want another example of an Edomite believer in the Old Testament, look no further than Caleb, who with Joshua was the only one of the spies to encourage the Israelites to trust God and take the land of Canaan. Numbers 13, verse 30. You see, Caleb was not an Israelite. Caleb was not circumcised. Caleb was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. You can see that in Numbers 32, 12, Genesis 36, 10 and 11 and 15. He was a Kenizzite, that is, a descendant of Kenaz, Esau's grandson, through his firstborn son, Eliphaz. Yet Caleb was a believer, and not just a believer, but a hero of the conquest of Canaan. And by the Lord's command, he was given a share in the, uh, in the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. Specifically, he was given the hill country around Hebron, because that's what Caleb asked for. Why did he ask for the hill country around Hebron? Because he said, that's where the giants are. That's the kind of guy Caleb is. He's 85 years old and he says, let me have the hill country around Hebron because that's where the giants are. Maybe the Lord will be with me and I will be able to drive them out and drive them out. He did. So what we see then in some is that the scripture does not tell us that Esau or Ishmael were damned. It tells us that they were put out of God's covenant people because of their opposition to God's sovereignly chosen Christ type. But that means that the way of repentance and faith was still open to them, just as it was still open with the unbelieving Jews of the first century. And so that's why it's truly encouraging, and we ought to take encouragement and hope from it, when we see changes of behavior, changes of attitude in um, Ishmael and Esau. For example, with Ishmael, we see him standing shoulder to shoulder with Isaac 
when they buried their father Abraham. That's encouraging. That's not the same Ishmael we saw earlier who got driven away. It's encouraging when we see Esau jumping off his ride and embracing uh, Jacob after 20 years of, of separation. Jacob thought Esau was going to kill him. Esau was trying to kill him the last time Jacob saw him, and now he's coming with 400 men. Jacob thinks he's a dead man, but Esau jumps off and, and embraces him. He's gracious. He's hospitable. It's like, what did you do with Esau? Who are you and what did you do with Esau? Because this is not the same guy we saw before. Now, we can't see directly into their hearts. We aren't told whether faith and repentance were actually present. But we do know that the kind of changes we see with Ishmael and Esau, those aren't the normal kind of changes normal people make in normal life because changing is hard, especially when you're a grown-up. Changing is hard. And these kind of changes... These kind of changes are the kind of changes that are consistent with God changing someone's heart. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. We can't see into their hearts. But this kind of a deep change in behavior and attitude is actually very hopeful. And that's how we should look at it. So we can and should have the same attitude toward the descendants of Ishmael and Esau. So as we close this morning, I want to think just for a minute about God's sovereignty and God's love, grace, and mercy. Those three really go together, his love, grace, and mercy. They go together. That's the first thing we need to see. God's sovereignty goes together with his love, grace, and mercy. Because if either one of them is absent, then salvation fails. Because without God's sovereign power, he would lack the power to save. It wouldn't matter if he wanted to save. He wouldn't have the power to do it. And without God's love, grace, and mercy, he would lack the desire to save, even if he had the power to do it. So they go together. The second thing we need to see is they are not enemies. They don't fight one another. God's sovereignty and his love, grace, and mercy do not fight one another. They are friends. You know, in reformed circles, we tend to think of God's sovereignty as the star of the show. And we think of his love, grace, and mercy kind of like best supporting actor. But I want to submit to you that as we look deeply at Scripture, the more deeply, the more you actually pay attention the scripture, I would submit to you that it's the other way around. It is God's love, grace, and mercy that is the star of the show. It is his sovereignty that is best supporting actor. Because God does not show his sovereignty by being stingy with his love, grace, and mercy. And that's often the way we think of it in reform circles. We think about God saying to Moses in Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we tend to hear that as 
I'm only going to have mercy on those I want to have mercy, and I don't want to have mercy very much. That's the way we hear it. And we think the whole point is how sovereign God is by showing us how little his grace and mercy is. But God doesn't show us his sovereignty by being stingy in his love, grace, and mercy. It's the other way around. He shows us his love, grace, and mercy by sovereignly overcoming every obstacle to his salvation. Do you see the difference? If you read the context when God makes that statement to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is in the context of Israel deserving God's wrath. You've just had the golden calf incident and so many other incidences where they were saying, God's brought us out here to kill us. He's brought us out here to kill our children. That's what he's done. We'd be better off back in Egypt. Let's go back. And God is explaining to Moses, who is asking God to show him his glory. And God is going to declare his name to Moses, which is God gracious and merciful and so forth. In that context, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. When you hear it in context, it's not, I'm not going to have mercy on anybody I don't want to. It's, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, my mercy shall triumph. My compassion shall not fail. I save. My salvation shall emerge victorious. You see the difference. Both of those show God's sovereignty equally. But do you see the difference? With one, sovereignty is the star of the show, love, grace, mercy. They're just around to feature sovereignty. With the other one, sovereignty is the best supporting actor. It is God's love, grace, and mercy that is the star of the show. And I think that's what the Bible teaches. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.